Hey, isn't it good to have the Kinchins in here with us? Yeah. yeah. If you have never seen what a Dachshund farm looks like, you can stop by my house and I'll loan you a shovel. You can help out. We had lots of uh, prayer requests and lots of praises as well. And uh, I don't think we, we should go through them all at the moment. I think we should share them with each other by phone and through our lives and interacting. But when I saw that picture of that baby healthy and whole, you know, the doctors said that there was a genetic deformity and that that baby was not going to make it. And they had lost one before in the third trimester. Uh, can you imagine being a parent hearing that? But we serve a God in heaven who can do anything. we got children in our children's church. I just glanced over at Jennifer and David who their babies were threatened in the womb. You know, her Jewish doctor was amazed. The Billy Rubin counts and things all respond to prayer when they don't respond to medicine. You hold out hope. Uh, you hold out great expectation and faith and trust in your God for the areas that you need His help in. He will come through. You've got people healed of cancer in here. Babies made whole. That's an amazing thing. And if you were writing the book of Acts, if that was you writing it, you know, every page is not every day. Sometimes ten years have passed between chapters. If you wrote these things down and then read back over the last decade in a few chapters, you would be amazed. It's only us who live through it that it gets to be kind of normal. Uh, you, we, we forget easily. I just encourage you to meditate on the good things that God's done in your life this year. Amen? Amen. Okay, that's my Thanksgiving message. Now we're going to preach. Uh, Let's start our recording. This morning is November 23rd. It is 2008. Our message this morning is called Christian Education. Uh, you'll want to turn to Genesis 2. I know that surprises all of you. Uh, you know, there's a debate in Christian education. And this is something that's close to my heart because I believe God's given us a vision to begin a school. Uh a school right here in Covington Square. We want to start with a pre-K. Uh, many of you that did Shalom by Eat with me, this is one of our private secret prayer requests. And at the time that I gave it to you, it was nothing more than that. Uh, I didn't realize that as soon as I had you pray, it would begin to manifest. Uh, we pray for rain and we carry umbrellas. So we want to start with a pre-K type scenario. And our hope is that in that pre-K, what will happen is children will get on fire for Jesus. Their lives will be touched. Uh, people with behavioral problems, people that their uh, children are not showing respect for them, suddenly those things will change. It will catch their parents' attention and they will become interested in what we're doing. Uh, I, she's not in here so I can brag on her a little bit. My wife, right after we began praying about this, got offered a job to go work in a pre-K. And they gave her all of the children that throw up on you, that are not yet trained, you know, for toiletry, and uh, that have some pretty bizarre behavioral problems. And she holds them and prays over them, and they're all getting better. That's surprising to the people there, the staff there. It's surprising to the teacher that she works with. It's not surprising to us. It's not surprising to our God. 
we want to minister to people by ministering to their kids. Then we want to move on to elementary and add a grade every so often and see how far that takes us. Well, having said that, some of my closest friends and family members in the world are all in Christian education. Uh, our friend Wade Sutherland that comes and speaks here regularly, this couldn't be any closer to his heart. Uh, my mother and father, my sister, uh, couldn't be any closer to their heart. And what I see is that God's assembling something. Well, let me ask you something. What makes a Christian education? Is a Christian education the material that is taught is Christian, and so that's a Christian education? Uh, how do you have Christian mathematics? Yeah, I mean, is there secular in Christian mathematics? About physics. Is there secular in Christian astronomy? Not astrology, but astronomy. <laughs> So what do we mean when we say Christian education? Is it Christian because of the material that's presented? Or is it Christian because of the people that are presenting it? Uh, are there Christian paintings? We would all say yes. But then when you look at the painting itself, it was painted by a homosexual who has been dead for 600 years and nothing in it is biblically correct. But hey, it's Christian art, right? Maybe not. You see another one that is a gorgeous sunset, and Psalm 19 says that the creation itself magnifies God, that it pours forth speech day and night, which all men everywhere understand. Is it any less Christian because it doesn't have a cross in it? What a great question, something to contemplate. How about Christian music? Is it Christian music because of the lyric content or the people singing it? Because Elvis Presley sang some fine hymns, did he not? Mm -hmm. If Matthew sings a love song to his wife that's anointed by God, is it Christian music? See, these are things worth contemplating, and uh, they can be fairly serious. In fact, y'all got somber right away, didn't you? We're not going to contemplate anything difficult like that. We're uh, going to have kind of a tongue-in-cheek scenario here. I began thinking about that very thing with Mandy at work, and the discussion carried over to a place that Matthew and I like to study where they allow the burning of incense. <laughs> and the serving of grain in various liquid formats. And it occurred to me that no other Christians on earth, at least in the southern part of the American earth, would do what we're doing. And yet we're Christians in that, in love with the Lord. Our lives show it. Everything that we're doing shows it. We just chose a location most Christians wouldn't. And as we began to contemplate this, it was humorous. So what is Christian mathematics? Well, Genesis 2.24 says something. It says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And they will become one flesh. That word for united is actually the Israeli word today for superglue. How about that? They didn't have a word for superglue, so they chose this one. A husband will leave his family, join his wife, and they will become one. In Christian mathematics, one plus one is not two. One plus one is one. How do you teach that to kids? So today, boys and girls, we have a class on mathematics. And uh, see, we're going to start with five loaves and two fish. But there's going to be 12 basketfuls left over. How does that work in math? I watched a show for a few minutes. Uh, my family quickly wanted to turn it. It was on Einstein the other night. Einstein's a German. 
And most of the other mathematicians were Germans. But when they went to other places like Prague to share their ideas, the other mathematicians that were there spoke other languages. And yet they could all understand the universal language of mathematics. That's kind of neat, isn't it? Two people don't speak the same language, but they can understand the same logic behind mathematics. So what would God be speaking to us through the language of mathematics if we see in His reckoning one plus one is one? Seems illogical to us, doesn't it? Do you think maybe that the reason that God's math is out of whack is to emphasize that unity is more important than distinction? That something that can be counted as distinct is outweighed by something that can be counted as unified? As I began thinking about this, I said, you know, this is not the only marriage in the Bible. In Genesis 2, we have a man leaving something, leaving his family to join to a woman, and they become one. Kind of neat. The greater leaves and joins the lesser, and we have one. But then you think about it. In Exodus 19, the fifth verse, God says, you're going to be for me a treasured possession. You're going to be for me a royal priesthood out of all the nations on the earth. You're going to be special to me. And in a Jewish-style wedding, He descended upon the mountain in a cloud called a hopa, a covering, like God's prayer shawl. And He made vows to Israel. The greater left His estate and came and joined the lesser so that they could become one. Hey, do y'all remember in our schools when they used to say the Pledge of Allegiance? It was one nation under God. And there was even a pause in it. In my day, they removed the pause, then they later removed the whole thing. America was not uh, the nation that God wed Himself to. Israel was. It starts off with a man wedding a female and becoming one flesh. It moves forward in history to where God leaves His estate, comes to the bride nation, marries her, so God's married a nation. In fact, Deuteronomy 7, 6 says that. More or less, it says it about the uniqueness of Israel's relationship with God. Then we move forward to something else. The way that a Jewish groom would, would make a proposition, proposition is not the right word, is it, Darren? <laughs> would propose, yes, Entirely different than a proposition to a Jewish bride was by offering her a glass of wine publicly. He would recite Exodus 6.6, 6, the promises that God gave to Israel about changing their whole way of life and redeeming them. And if she accepted by drinking of this cup, then everybody knew that they had a covenant together, even though you didn't see all of its realities yet. How strange then that at the Last Supper, what we have is not a God marrying a nation, but the greater, the God-man, who's come to the lesser, the world at large, who's in need, and offering a marriage covenant. See, John teaches us that as many would believe on Him, He would give the rights to become the sons of God. This means that no longer was this just one man marrying one woman. No longer was this one God taking one nation, but now all of a sudden we have God marrying the world. All who would receive Him. What could you learn from Christian mathematics, I wonder? You know, Revelation 21 says something interesting. 
Let's turn there real quick. Revelation 21, that's easy to find. You get to the book of maps and concordances and you make a left. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city. Not in Italy. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now I heard, I'm sorry, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. He will live with them. He said with men. Not one husband with his wife. Not one God with his nation. God living with mankind. How cool is that? They will be His people and God Himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. As I began to look at Christian mathematics, what I saw is that God places a greater emphasis on unity because He wants people to unify with each other. He wants nations to unify with Him. And in the end, He wants to be one with a new world that is crafted in His image. How neat is that? So what do you teach in Christian math? Well, the neat thing is is you can use math to teach about God. Not only is one plus one one, what is one plus one plus one in the Bible? One. God is a God of glaring contradiction. And when you point these contradictions out to the Eastern people that gave us this book, this is an Eastern book and we are Western minds. That makes this difficult for us at times. We think in such linear fashion that we say, one plus one's one. I got it. So one plus one plus one's got to be something else. And it's confusing to us. They go, yeah. They don't see a problem with it. They see that it magnifies God. So when you see Scriptures like this one that say, My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of My Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is a way of emphasizing over and over and over that God wants to unify with people. But to do it, we have to be made into His image. The reason the Son and the Father were one was because they were identical. They lived and acted and breathed and moved in like fashion. Jesus goes so far as to say He doesn't speak unless He's heard the Father say it. How about this one? I have given them the glory that You gave Me that they may be one as we are one. They may be one as we are one. That would mean that none of us would have distinctiveness characterized by sin. We would only be unified in the will of God. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now Jesus has said something kind of strange. You and I, Father, we're one. All of them, how many ever ones that is, at the point we're speaking about six trillion, they'll all be one. And then our one and their one will be one. Christian mathematics is uh, confusing, is it not? So what makes Christian mathematics? Do you think maybe that we're teaching principles to children and using truths in the creation to do it? 
I thought this was interesting. As our minds began to wander, Matthew and I thought of the David Letterman skit, Will It Float? I've never seen such interest. I don't like David Letterman. I find him uh, not interesting. But if you take a block of Philadelphia cream cheese and drop it into water, you've got my attention immediately because I need to know whether or not it's going to float. <laughs> I don't know why. That probably speaks more about me than David Letterman. Apparently, it does not take a lot to impress me. The science that this falls under is physics. The specific area of physics is specific gravity. So when you want to know whether or not something will float, this is the area that we would teach it in school. Specifically, specific gravity is defined as the ratio of density of a given solid or liquid substance to the density of water at a specific temperature and pressure. Substances with a specific gravity that are greater than one are denser than water. Specific gravity that is less than one should float in water. You got me? So we're going to express this as anything one and above should float. Anything below one should... Wow, is Cassidy the only one still awake in here? Has she been up all night feeding her baby? Y'all understand what I'm talking about? We're going to ignore buoyancy for those of you who are very bright in here. We're going to ignore surface tension. We're simply going to speak about the matter itself and say, will it float? So if I tell you that an object has a specific gravity of 7.77, it should sink. Everything one and above. Church, church, church. I know a lot of us were from Louisiana, but if I said it wrong, I said it wrong. The expression of specific gravity... The expression of specific gravity is numbers that are one and above sink because they're more dense. Numbers that are below one are less dense than water. We're ignoring surface tension and buoyancy. It so happens that a metal mentioned in the Bible is 7.77. In other words, it's almost 800% more dense than water at equal volumes and equal pressure. Now, do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. So if it's more dense, 800% more dense than water, it should sink. Turn with me to 2 Kings. Hmm. I've got to find it, Darren. 2 <laughs> Kings 6. There. There. Almost there. 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 Get there. My wife's in here. Now I really have to be good. No more talk about propositions. If you're discouraged when you see the news, proposition maybe, think of Proposition 8, and you see that there are radical elements of our society that are trying to impose the will of the minority upon the majority, when you see that there are activist judges that seek to overturn the will of the people, please don't become too disheartened. You do what you can. You vote when you can vote. If you have the opportunity to express an opinion, by all means, feel free to do that. But keep in mind that our God 
He's in control. The nations have their own plans, but the book of Psalms says He laughs at them. America is not Zion. It is not the nation that will be chief among nations. It is not the hill that will be raised above every hill. It is not the nation that all nations are to stream to. I don't love America any less. I'm proud to be an American. But I just want you to understand our God is bigger than the problems that you see on the news. You're going to find out right now that He's able to make things float that should sink. And He'll take things that by all rights should float and He'll make them sink. Our God has a will of His own. So if we're going to teach children physics, we need to teach them that God is not bound by the very rules that He created for everyone else. Are you ready? Second yes. Kings 6. The company of prophets said to Elisha, Look, the place where we meet with you is too small for us. They were in a storefront. They wanted a bigger church. <laughs> let us go to the Jordan where each of us can get a pole and let us build a place there for us to live. I like the way that they lay this out. When they want to build a bigger church, each person in the church goes and gets the materials and then they all come together and build it. Isn't that nice? And he said, Go. Then one of them said, Won't you please come with your servants? I will, Elijah replied. And he went with them. They went to the Jordan and began to cut down trees. As one of them was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. Iron has a specific gravity of 7.77. Oh, my Lord! He cried out. If you say that in South Louisiana, it's, Oh, Lord! No R in it. Oh, my Lord! He cried out, It is borrowed. The man of God asked, Where did it fall? You ever borrowed a neighbor's tool and broke it? Yeah. You ever borrowed your pastor's tool and broke it? <laughs> the man of God asked, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, Elijah cut a stick and threw it there and made the iron float. Lift it out, he said. The man reached out his hand and took it. If you were teaching a class in physics to Christian children and you say, iron can't float, what would this mean? In Christian education, apparently the laws of specific gravity are secondary to building something for God. When your heart is invested in the kingdom, He can make you float even when the world says you must sink. Turn with me to Romans 14.4. Let's apply this to an individual life. There. There. Who's there? Mandy's there. There. Who are you to judge someone else's servants? To his own master he stands or falls. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. There are many times in my life when other people have looked and said, there's no way he'll make it. None. My wedding was one of them. A couple hundred people there, probably only a handful that thought that we would actually make it. And why would they think something like that? Well, we were 18. We had not finished school. College, that is. I didn't have a steady job. You want your daughter to marry somebody that doesn't have a job and is just out of high school? Probably not. Uh, I'd been born again all of 
three months. Four months earlier, I was on my wife's parents' couch, uh, beaten and bruised from a discourse that went wrong. Can you blame anybody? But God can make you float when everything around you says you should sink. He can give you the power to stand when everything around you says you're going to fall. That's the kind of God we serve. Look at Psalm 37. That ought to preach to somebody in this room. Psalm 37, look at the 23rd verse. Christian education. If the Lord delights in a man's way, He makes His footsteps firm. Though he stumble, he will not fall, for the Lord upholds him with His hand. See, the missing factor in God's physics is God. And when we look and we define this universe and everything that is around us without accounting for God, our education is incomplete. This leads us to something. What is Christian education? It might be acknowledging God and His creation in every area of it. Because if you look at specific gravity without accounting for God, 2 Kings 6 must be a lie. And we know that God's Word is true. How cool is that? You think maybe, maybe physics could teach you something about God? I think so. As you move on in physics, Matthew and I, because something kept going out, I don't know what it was, it's really Matthew's problem, and uh, he kept having to light matches. Uh, we began thinking about that. The law of conservation of energy, thermodynamics. Energy is neither created nor destroyed, only transferred from one form to another, in this case a match to something, whatever it was. And a bush on fire is an exothermic process, transferring the potential energy in the form of a bush into kinetic energy in the form of fire. This results in substantial physical and chemical change that reduces the bush into less complex forms of carbon, like carbon dioxide and water. In other words, if you light a bush on fire, it consumes the bush. It burns it up. So if you're teaching physics, if you wanted to teach thermodynamics, if you needed to cover the law of the conservation of energy, you could turn to Exodus 3. Why don't you do that? One of the most foundational experiences in the Hebrew Bible is the way in which God revealed Himself to Moses. Every facet of it is memorized by the Hebrew people. Every facet of it is meditated upon and contemplated so that they can see God in all of the creation, so that they can better understand Him. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. This is Exodus 3, verse 2. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. Amazing. 1600 B.C., while most of the world was doing things like putting urine into open wounds to heal it, Moses understood thermodynamics. In what simplest form did he understand it? If the bush is on fire, it's got to burn up, right? He sees that it doesn't burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this 
strange sight. Why does the bush not burn up? In Christian education, we learn that fuel and resources are not necessary for God's fire to exist. We don't need energy to transfer from one to another because there is an eternal source of energy. He's the source of all energy and He doesn't need anything to exist. He is not dependent upon resources. If you're teaching children about thermodynamics and you want to teach them these laws, we must take into account what Ephesians 3 tells us. Go to Ephesians 3. Listen to this prayer. Ephesians 3. I think you may have covered this at the ladies' meeting. 3.14 For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of His glorious riches He may strengthen you with power through His Holy Spirit in your inner being. Before we get there, if you apply the strictest laws of physics to this, God would have to be diminished for you to be empowered. Good thing that God's not subject to that, isn't it? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep the love of Christ is and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask for or imagine. Immeasurably more than you can ask for or imagine. This means that God's working in your life, the blessings in your life, cannot be quantified. And listen to hell. According to His power that is at work within us. God appears within a bush. The bush is not consumed. This is a strange sight. And it, for all intents and purposes, begins a religion that teaches us about God. And in God's very core, something that we need to know about Him is that He is in you any strange thing is possible. Anywhere, anything is possible. He doesn't need your fuel. He doesn't need your resources. He does not leave you burnt and spent in some lesser form of matter. In fact, he does the opposite, which contradicts another law of energy, but we're not going to go into it. He takes simple forms of life and makes them more complex. He doesn't take complex forms and degrade them and make them lesser. That is another spiritual power that is at work. So what do you learn in Christian education? You learn that He's at work within us just like He's at work within the bush. And that if He's in you, the rest of the world will be drawn and say, I need to see this strange sight. And not only will you not be burned up and be spent, immeasurably more than you're capable of asking for or imagining as possible in your life. Could you teach children something like that? Oh, I bet you could. I bet you could. I'm counting on the fact that you can. How about philosophy? Logic. What would Christian logic look like? Logic is the study of reasoning based upon the principles of valid demonstration and inference. Another way to say it is that logic is a branch of philosophy utilizing deductive reasoning where a statement must be true if the preceding premises are true. The business and computer world calls this if-then or therefore statements. 
Here's an example of Aristotle's logic at work. Premise number one, all humans are mortal. We're clear? Premise number two, Aristotle is human. So our deductive reasoning at work, our logic in action says, therefore, Aristotle will die. Was that right? Yeah. Yeah. Right 100% of the time, isn't it? Let's look at biblical logic in action. Slightly more confusing. Has anybody ever read the book of Romans, gotten to the seventh chapter and had to read it more than once? <laughs> Said, Paul, there is no doubt that you understand this, but for the rest of us that are a little slower, could you explain it again? Look at Romans 7, starting in 19. I was tempted to make this one Christian grammar, but uh, decided not to. The apostles always run on sentences. It seems to be a uh, a right of an apostle. Y'all in Romans seven nineteen? Yeah. Remember, logic is dependent upon preceding premises being true, and if they are, then you can come by the way of deductive reasoning to a therefore statement. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. I don't even think that Aristotle would easily wrap his mind around that one. Premise number one, according to Paul, is I do evil that I don't want to do. Begs the question, then why do you do it, right? Premise number two, if I do what I don't want to do, it's not me doing it. He's already lost me. What is the therefore statement? Therefore, it must be a foreign power in me who does it, called sin. Apparently in Christian education, logic can depend on something called a missing premise. The missing premise in Paul's statement is that man has two natures. He must die to one and live to the other. We consider the sin nature an enemy and not part of us. In Christian education, we need to teach that if anything seems illogical, we are missing a premise that comes from God that He will reveal to us if we seek Him. Go to the book of Ephesians. You might already be there. You'll be in the first chapter. Look at the 17th verse. Worldly logic has to have plainly demonstrated principles that from them you can infer a logical conclusion. Biblical philosophy is not that way at all. It can plainly state two things that seem unrelated and draw a conclusion, a third conclusion from it, that you can't understand how it happened. This is why the world calls it foolishness. And yet it always revolves around a missing premise. God needs to show you, reveal a bigger piece of the puzzle. And when you see it, you stand back and go, wow, he's bigger than I thought he was five minutes ago. In Ephesians 1, starting in the 17th verse, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. 
Layman's terms, revelation is when you did not see or understand something, and now by way of God, you see it and understand it. So that you may know Him better. When you become wise, according to the Bible, in Christian education, and when you begin to receive revelation, the result is that you know Him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and His incomparably great power for us who believe. Christian logic always depends upon something called a missing premise. If you see two statements that don't make a sense, don't make sense together, and you don't know how on earth they could relate to each other, we seek God and He reveals it to us, and you know Him better and have more of His power working in you. As I began to think about this, I couldn't help but think of Jesus in Matthew 11. He glorifies God. He says, Father, I thank You that You have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, but have revealed them to the children, the little ones. So if we were teaching our kids a Christian education towards the art of logic, it would not start with premise number one and premise number two and end up with therefore. Where's the beginning of all wisdom? We have to fear and inquire of the Lord. Could you teach that to children, do you think? I think I could. In John 17, in the sixth verse, he says something else. He says, Father, I've taken all out of the world that you've given me and I revealed you to them. Fundamental to our understanding of a Christian education is that you don't get the ways of God naturally. It does not follow a linear pattern of logic. It follows the pattern of a relationship. Those of you who are married, has your spouse ever done anything that just baffled you? My wife this morning asked me about a garbage can. She said, Husband... There is no liner in this garbage can. Okay. She said, and it's a short liner. Yeah. And the can in the kitchen takes a long liner. Yeah. She said, is there a question coming in here somewhere? She said, do you think we should get a liner for the garbage can? I was baffled and amazed. I said, wait, let me make sure that I understand this. There is no liner. We need a liner. And you want to know if we should get a liner? She said, yes. I said, well, of course, baby. Yes, that's very good. That didn't make very much sense to me. But as I walk off, mild male frustration, something about it is cute to me. That she wanted to check with me before she bought a liner for a garbage can. There are a lot of things in relationships that don't make perfect sense but you admire them about each other, and it adds a little sense of mystery, doesn't it? Well, Paul, when he has a mystery revealed to him, a revelation not made plain to men in other generations, he wrote chapters about it. See, a relationship takes you into something beyond just the realm of logic. It takes you into what I taught you Wednesday, Proverbs teaches us, takes you into the kingly pursuit of knowing our God better. If you were teaching logic to children, 
the way that you would do it is to teach them to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, strength. And He will make everything make sense. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Well, I have to drop another logic bomb on you just because it's fun. John 18. you got to go to this one. There. There. By the way, in John 17, when he said uh, that he had revealed the Father to people, the people he identified as having been having had the Father revealed to them were those who obeyed God's Word. Isn't that amazing? When somebody does not understand God very well, it very often, according to Jesus, could be that they are not obeying His Word. Okay, John 18.33. Listen to this interaction between a Roman and a Jew. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked Him, Are you the king of the Jews? That seems like a, a pretty straightforward question, doesn't it? Is this red? Is this black? Do you want a liner in the can, don't you? Hey, Jen, you back in here, huh? Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked Him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews, but now my kingdom is from another place. If you're Pilate, are you scratching your head at this point? I probably would be scratching my head at this point. You are a king then, said Pilate. Now how did, how did Pilate deduce that? You are a king then. Because Jesus at least in his answer, good thing he wasn't on the O'Reilly factor. O'Reilly would not have allowed Jesus to answer this question in this way. It's called bloviating. Except if you're Jesus and you do it, it's beautiful. Because he's making a point. We're going to get to the missing premise. But how did Pilate deduce it? Well, Jesus did at least use the words my kingdom in his response. Right? You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You're right in saying that I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Pilate rightly reasoned that Jesus was a king because he claimed to have a kingdom. But Jesus then goes on to say, Premise number one, My kingdom is not of this world. Premise number two, If it were, my servants would fight. Okay, I can follow that. The therefore conclusion is my kingdom must be from another place. What on earth would that mean to you if you were Pilate? According to worldly logic, this does not make much sense. Because if it were simply that it were another geographic location, why would the soldiers not just come and fight? If it were just another geographic location, most of what Jesus said, just simply, you can't use the process of deduction to understand. What is Jesus talking about? Jesus is allowing for a missing premise, a kingdom that is not based upon fighting over a piece of dirt. What do we fight for in the kingdom of God? Do we stake our claim? Do we go hammer uh, through a survey, metal rods into a ground and say, this plot of land is mine, it belongs to God? Well, we haven't done that as Christians since the Crusades, if they were Christians in the Crusades. That's debatable. The only people on the planet that are doing that at the moment are what the news media calls radical Islam and 
truthfully is just true Islam. What's different about Christians? We're not talking about a different location. We're talking about an entirely different kind of kingdom. One that wages war for men's souls rather than a plot of dirt. Maybe this continued presence of a missing premise in Christian logic is to teach us to seek God for more information before making any decision. Think about this from Pilate's standpoint. If Pilate had been taught in a Christian education, then when something doesn't make sense to you, you inquire of God, what would he be doing before he rendered his decision? Praying, Praying and inquiring of God. He wasn't taught such a thing. Do you think that in the history of humanity there's ever been a bigger mistake than the one that he made? See, we need to teach people from the very beginning that when you look at life and it's not making much sense, you're missing a key principle from God called the premise. And we need to teach to search for that. Go with me to the book of Corinthians. Good. Where are the rest of them? You're going to be in the second chapter of Corinthians. By the way, Brandon just did something very Jewish. Most of Judaism is set up in a way that gets you to ask a question. When you see a glaring contradiction like 1 plus 1 is 1 and 1 plus 1 plus 1 is 1, what does that make a normal person do? Raise their hand and ask a question. In the Bible, the reason that God allows there to be missing premises and glaring contradictions at times, paradox, uh, paradoxical statements like find a life you must lose it, is to get us to ask Him a question. In other words, like any good husband, He wants His bride to want to know Him better. How cool is that? You in Corinthians 2? Yes. Listen to this. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Sometimes for fun, do, do a word study on that, the word nothing there. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. There is a mystery to the world, a giant missing principle called God's working. And this is true in physics with specific gravity. It's true in mathematics. It's true in every area of an education. And if we deprive our kids or ourselves of the possibility of factoring in God in our reasoning, we're hopeless. Because this entire Eastern book revolves around the fact that God works through His creation and that He teaches us through it. How could you educate anyone without accounting for that? So what is a Christian education then? Maybe an education that considers God in all of this way. How many of you have things going on in your life right now that don't make sense? Does it make sense for a loved one to die? I conversed with my brother-in-law last night. It hurts even when our pets die. 
What does medical science say about all of that? Medicine is the art and science of healing. It encompasses a range of healthcare practices evolved to maintain and restore health by the prevention and treatment of illness. The chief concern of medical science has been to postpone and avert death. How are they doing with that? Medical science defines death as the permanent cessation of biological functions that define living organisms. Boy, that's a mouthful, isn't it? All that to say, we don't want you to be sick and we're going to keep you from dying. whole branch of study. The branch of study that we invest more money in than any other. In Christian education, what do we find? Death is temporary for some and happens twice for others. Let's go to John 11. I think Piro was camping there. Look at the 25th verse. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in Me will never die. Do you believe this? What a powerful Scripture. What a powerful Scripture. If you were a medical student, where would you put this in your teaching? Because death is defined as the absence of the biological functions that define life. So what was Lazarus? I would say he's pretty dead. Those signs had not been there for four days. But God said, if you believe, you'll live even though you die. And you may never die. Isn't that kind of what medical science is trying to achieve? Mm-hmm. But they're missing something. Hmm. Pick up with me then in the 43rd verse. When we believe God, no power, no law, no science can limit His working. We come out of where we are, no matter where it is, and we truly live the abundant life. The 43rd verse. When He had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. If you were going to teach children about the medical arts, if you were going to teach them about medicine, the very first thing that you would have to teach them is that it's appointed unto man once to die. But in Christ, We live again. Would you like a chance to teach little kids that? Would you like them to know that from the time that they were little on? To have hope when they experience the death of loved ones? Lord, I want to teach adults that too. How about this? Revelation 21. How about to die twice? But the cowardly... Revelation 21.8 But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars. Well, that's a good one to teach kids. And all liars. Their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second 
death. Some people die once and live again. The others simply die twice. Medical science makes no allotment for that. But the King of Kings said something in John 5.24 that has changed the world as we know it. He said, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I think more than anything else when you look at what a Christian education is, is that you have to teach people how to really live. And if they should happen to experience death, they only do it once. Because the second time is kind of a doozy. <laughs> In Christian math, we learned that God wanted to be one with us. He wants that like a husband wants to be one with a wife. In Christian physics, we learned that He is able to make us stand or float when everything else points to the fact that we should sink or fall. In the study of thermodynamics, we found out that God has no limitations and that if we let Him inside of us, like Him inside the burning bush, more than we can imagine is possible. In Christian philosophy, we learn that there are often confusing things in this world full of missing premises that prevent us from understanding God's working, but that He reveals Himself and His working to the little children and the humble of heart, and that He does this by His Holy Spirit which resides in you. In the field of medical science for Christians, we learn that loving obedience to Jesus as our King is the only thing that will heal you, prevent death, and give you a truly abundant life. I would say that that would be a Christian education, wouldn't you? Yes. The two don't have to be opposed to each other. The creation speaks of the glories of God. You know what we want in starting a school? We want the freedom to teach algebra, but to be able to credit God with its creation rather than a Muslim. We want to be able to talk about Aristotle's logic and compare it with Paul's. We want the opportunity to teach people the truth and nothing but the truth instead of excluding the source of truth. I began thinking about a bonus subject for you and I think it's probably not something that I should do to you time-wise. But I want to summarize it for you. I think maybe one of the best classes that we could have as Christians giving an education would be astronomy. Because astronomy to the world is the oldest of sciences. It goes back and has a further record in history than any other science period bar none. And they call it the study of the heavenly bodies if they move in predetermined paths. But in the Bible, we learn that the earth can reverse its orbit 15 steps for a man who loves God. We learn that a star can move and lead men to Jesus if there is no other way. We learn that a day can be lengthened by twice if it's necessary because God's people are outnumbered and He wants to give them victory. See, there is no area 
of this creation in which the Creator does not get magnified. All we have to do is acknowledge Him. Let me ask you something. Next time someone says Christian education, are you going to think of the goofy little pies and that Christian flag out in front of the school? Are we going to think of in every area of our lives finding the Creator at work in wonderful and amazing ways? See, I would say a Christian education is what you're receiving now. And a Christian education is what you will be giving your family members for Thanksgiving. Just by living. Just by carrying out life. The abundant life. You're certain to meet people without hope. You are certain to meet people that are trying to avert death or slow the onset of illness. They might not understand that the spiritual sickness in them will kill them faster than the other. What are we going to do about it? I want to bring them life. You? You think you meet anybody that the world is a confusing place and they're just missing a premise for their logic? Yeah, I think so. But you found the answer, didn't you? Well, then we can't sit inside the salt shaker anymore. We have to go bring life. We have to go bring life to them. Y'all stand to your feet. We're going to join hands. And when we pray, we're going to pray that God make us this week emissaries to our relatives.